Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guests today are two of my favorite guests, Mr. Mark Holcomb and Misha Mansour of Periphery and Haunted Shores. Let's just get into this. This is going to be a great episode. Misha and Mark, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to have you here. And uh, just so you know, I had never really heard Haunted Shores before this week. Like I, I knew about it obviously, cause we've talked about it, but, uh, I, I didn't really know what it was for some reason. I assumed it was like an iron maiden kind of thing. Like, I don't know why <laughs> I, it was, I had this idea in my head of what it was. That is not anything to do with reality, obviously. Cause I checked it out. I was like, no, this is, uh, now I understand everything that you've told me about how much you love black metal. Um, I'm, I hear it in that. So I was very happy. I was happy. I was surprised, but I was mostly happy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not super well known, but, uh, I think, I think, I think we kind of like that. That's very black metal of us, right? It's very black metal. And we're true and cult and we're into all that (laughs) stuff. So yeah, I'm kind of bummed. You didn't get what you want with your whole iron maiden expectations. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm glad I didn't get that. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm glad I didn't want that. I just, for, I don't know why. I just, I thought I like had this, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, like these cool musicians will do these side projects or other bands and then it'll be like this like 80s metal or like stupid thrash or like something like that. And I don't know why I was expecting something different, but this is like, I really liked it and I, I love how dark it is. And it's cool hearing stuff with a black metal element, I guess, delivered with that level of heaviness because usually it's weird. The two don't necessarily go together. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get a lot of hate if they do. I know. <laughs> it's yeah. too produced. It's too produced. I think I think what it is is like we both like 
well-produced music. We like music that hits hard, and we like death metal, and we like dark stuff. He's more of the black metal guy. He was the guy who was raised on black metal, and I've kind of gotten it into it through him. And I wouldn't say I was ever, like, super into it, but I like a lot of the aesthetic of it, and then I don't like, you know, kind of how ratty a lot of it sounds. I think a lot of that has to probably do with, like, when you were first exposed to it. That's just what it sounded like. But now it's like, well, what more could it be? So it's sort of this mix of all the, the things that we that we kind of like. So we'd want it to have a good mix. And there's kind of the album opens and closes with kind of a parody of that. I know. I actually liked I was. It wouldn't have bothered me if it stayed like that the whole way through. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten a few comments like that where it's like, and it's like, yeah, I, I get it. But sort of... Like uh, <laughs> tricking people into thinking that's what the whole mix is going to be like, which which was kind of funny. I did that on a Doth record once. There is a moment where it goes into the old school, uh, the old school Euro blast with like tremolo picking minor chords, and the whole thing went lo-fi on purpose. And it goes like that for a while, and then it it does like what you guys did, which is really fun to do. But then the only thing in my mind was like, why didn't we just keep it lo-fi the entire time? <laughs> it wouldn't have bugged me with, if you guys had kept it lo-fi. Misha did a funny thing when it came to the drum programming for those sections for the lo-fi <laughs> intro and the outro <laughs> is he, he like quantized the drums so they sounded messy as shit. <laughs> That's great. Like I put like a random, uh, a randomizer to the, uh, to the quantization because if you listen to those, those old black metal recordings, it's not tight. At all, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> and it's like this really pingy uh, snare because you know this is, they're not using samples or anything like that, so that's the only way for it to cut through is super pink. Like it sounds like a piccolo that's not being rim shot, you know. And like those are all off. Like the blast beats sound terrible. Like, but it's part of the character. So like we went the extra mile to like try to replicate that. <laughs> the fills sound real funny. <laughs> yeah, it was my only experience with one of these bands. I did get to record a uh, you know a cult band in like the early 2000s they were american but they were accepted by the og european scene which is really quite a feat but uh they were very much about the real deal the bad sides of it too which i was unaware of until they showed up at my house and uh <laughs> these dudes these dudes were like meth head nazis um, oh boy yeah I, I i didn't know going in but i should have assumed I should have assumed. Yeah. The singer made me take him to a graveyard so that <laughs> before we did the vocals, he made me take him to this. There's this big graveyard near my parents' house, which is where my studio was. So we went for like a walk for like a good hour for him to get the inspiration. And then we got back and uh, he suited up like the full armor and corpse paint. He put down tarp in the vocal booth, like a lot of tarp and covered the walls with some plastic and then came in the control room, blew two lines of meth, and uh, went in the vocal booth with some razor blades and cut the shit out of himself while just, like, screaming black metal vocals. Uh, that Jeez. was... That was, I was like, wow, this is, like, a real... This is How real. considerate for a method Nazi <laughs> black metal I know. That's some serious method act. He's like a Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. of <laughs> the black Daniel metal Daniel Day-Lewis of black metal... <laughs> It was, uh, it was, <laughs> it spent six months just getting into character. Yeah, lived in the, lived in a cave with a troll and, and <laughs> I, man, I don't even know what happened to that guy, but like also when recording the rest of the instruments, I remember there were like some rules. Some of the rules were like, 
you can't palm anything. All drums have to be one take and you can't use like more than two microphones. Like there are all these rules about if it sounded too good, that was bad. It had to be shitty, but then at the same time, Satyricon's uh, Volcano had just come out. And for some, I don't know why, they decided that they wanted it to sound as powerful as that, but lo-fi, impossible. But uh, so it never ended up getting finished. But that that was my experience with true, true black metal. Wow. Nazis that like to bleed everywhere and make everything fucking impossible. <laughs> oh, oh, and also this really cool part, one of the guitar players couldn't be there because he was running from the feds. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, we, we had a, a much simpler yeah. time recording. <laughs> you know? It was uh, tricky to get some of the guitar tones, I guess. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing. Nowadays, that whole side of it has kind of passed. Like, now it's just about making stuff sound cool. Like, do you like the music? Yes or no at the end. I'm sure there's a contingent of people. I think it's just popular. There's so, contingents. But, like, but, uh, but it's probably just the more visible part now. In any case, that's a style that would, like, be niche anyways, right? Within a genre that's in that's a, that's a subgenre of a niche genre, it's just like so that you know the, the the true true side of that. I'm sure it's out there, but you'd have to really look for it. You won't find it by accident, kind of. No, and it's become super unpalatable. Like because the the original stuff was kind of cool. Like had like harmonies and melodies and riffs, kind of. You know, like even if it was like basement sounding, it was still like songs because bands that got bigger took that i think that the people who were making the the trv stuff went even more extreme and now it's like just it's like avant-garde noise yeah basically. that's the stuff that i find to be the yeah. most impenetrable like in the genre like it's very difficult to and i've tried like you know a lot of black metal guys have like sent me links to bands like that like and, I, and none really spring to mind but like a lot of it is just like yeah it's just like really intentionally awfully produced avant-garde experimental black metal and that all the riffs are gone you know and that's that's kind of why i liked and fell in love with a lot of that stuff in the 90s and uh yeah i remember i showed i remember i showed misha like emperor stuff back in 2006 or something yeah i remember thinking that that production was cool because it, it was in, in in relation to the other stuff in the genre like equilibrium and prometheus I remember thinking, this is so much better than the rest of the stuff in the circle. And then I showed it to Misha and he was like, it's cool, but man, I can't get past the production. <laughs> <laughs> the mix is rough to me. I remember just saying like, this is harsh. Like, this, yeah. is, yeah. this is challenging to listen to. But but I, at least with the Emperor stuff, I was like, man, like there's some really cool compositional stuff mm -hmm, going on. Mm -hmm. Like it seemed like it was like, like a, a band that was trying to do very progressive stuff and pushing towards that within this, the constraint of their genre and even on the production end, like, cause I think then you showed me, you're like, you think this is bad. Like, you know, mm -hmm, yeah. and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I see why you think that that's a good, good mix compared to, because, you know, things are audible and whatever. It's just kind of, it's why I would say it's like rough around the edges compared to, to some of the earlier stuff, but like, or some, some other black metal bands of that era where it's like. A question of whether it was even intentional. It was like, they just don't have any money or were like they actively going for something 
terrible, which I think at that point in time, having not being exposed to that, that was almost unfathomable. It was like, oh, they must have just had no budget, you know, and they just didn't know any better and they recorded themselves or something. Like some of these things sound like they literally took a couple of microphones and stuck it in the middle of the room and then (laughs) hit record. And it was like, all right. I I think that's what happened. Yeah. Your reaction to Emperor, (laughs) what Mark was just describing, like I've, I've experienced that reaction too with people. Uh, and I've always thought that it's, it reminds me of like when an adult lets like a kid take a sip of alcohol, like, or something. (laughs) And they have that reaction, like, what the fuck is this? And the adults are like, what do you mean? It's great. (laughs) I just remember like, you know, like, I don't know if you experienced it, like being allowed to have like a tiny sip of like whiskey or something as a kid and being like horrified by it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, that's an apt uh, comparison because it is a very acquired taste. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just, you can't, most people at least can't just get into that without being sort of primed on like death metal or, or metal in general. Like that's a very, that's a, that's a bit of a leap so in the same way that if you're drinking water going straight to whiskey without sort of going through beer or like a, a less spirited spirit, you know? It's weird though, Mark, did you have to go through that? Cause I didn't like when I first heard like emperor and dissection, like I was immediately like, yes. Which emperor though? That's the question. Nice side eclipse. Oh wow. Okay. That was, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. My, my gateway was uh, funny enough and you can rag on this band. I know fucking everybody and their mothers rags on this band. Kiss. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Cradle of Filth <laughs> is uh, Cradle of Filth. Uh, cruelty and the beast. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, people like to make fun of Cradle of Filth, whatever. I fucking, I still love that band. And those, like that era where Nick Barker played drums in that band at the time, and then he went to Demi Borgir from there. And I didn't know jack shit about drums, but I remember thinking that like something that this drummer was doing was cooler and more innovative than the other bands, you know, that were playing that Mm -hmm. style of music. And then he joined Demu, and then the record that they put out, I think in 99 or 2000, uh, puritanical puritanical euphoric misanthropia that one where like the drums were up front in the mix almost too loud Mm -hmm. and um those were like my two favorite and that was how i got into the rest of it so i kind of went like to the i guess you would call them at the time like the the bands that got a lot of flack from the purists you know that's where i started and then i kind of got into the stuff that was less easy to listen to I always felt like Demu on that record and the one that came after is like the pinnacle of what you can do with that style. If like you have really good production and really good musicians, it's like you keep the same aesthetic and the same like values. I don't mean like the political side. I mean like the the satanic values and stuff <laughs> like the same and the same like darkness and all that. But like you just do it up like as far like take it to like as far as it'll go, at least for that time period. I, when I heard Demo back then, I was like, yes, yes, finally. Like I always, yeah. that's what I wanted it to be. But still, when I heard like the early Emperor, I don't know, because I heard it on, so there was like college radio in Atlanta in like the, in the 90s, there was a show called Wreckage and it came on at like midnight on Friday nights and played till like six in the morning. And so it was the only way to hear anything metal that wasn't like you know the cds you owned so that's how we would discover new shit and they'd play like all this garbage death metal and it would just be like god how can anyone listen to this shit and then emperor would come on and 
just be like, this is so cool. It's got harmony. It's got melody. It's dark as shit. I know it sounds like it was recorded underwater, but yeah. underwater's scary. scary. <laughs> <laughs> There's some scary shit in the ocean. So <laughs> Yeah, it definitely had mood and ambiance and, and yeah. just an energy to it that is really, really difficult to replicate. And now when they play that stuff live, if you've watched any like their videos when they headline like Vakken or something like that in Europe, and they play those old songs from Nightside and Wrath of the Tyrants and stuff like that. It just sounds so fucking powerful. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, with a modern live mix, like, holy fuck. Misha, like, uh, I'm curious about your level of, um, not taste, but, like, how you like it now. Because it, if you came into it and kind of had to acclimate yourself to it and had, like, issues with the production value and the aesthetic and all that, what was it about it that you did latch onto enough to like do this. I think in a way, you know, you, you mentioned the Demi Borgir, like I never got into, I've never like gotten into any of these bands and I know that they got a lot of flat, like, like black metal guys don't like Demi, you know, or it seems that way. Like, I think it's like Slipknot where like back in the day, the true metal heads pretended they hated him, but they still listened to him when no one was looking. So to me, that was like, Oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. Cause it has all the aesthetic but the mix was incredible. The videos were incredible. It was like kind of like what it was like the theatrical mm -hmm. kind of full on like 11 out of 10 version of it. But I, I really I don't know why I, I just think that those like the dark melodies and the over the top, everything's a, a you know, minor chord and like <laughs> blast beats and, and just it's just so over the top. There's this aesthetic, which I think is really cool. And really powerful uh, in context. But now that I think about it, there isn't really a genre of music that focuses as much on that. You might even, and this is maybe why, why Opeth ended up being the kind of band that it is, like hear that in folk music sometimes, like darker folk music. But it's very uncommon, like in any style of music I can think of, to have like just minor chords and everything's that dark, right? Even in music that people call like sort of depressing or whatever, right? It's usually more moody than just straight up darkness. Yes. And then that with like, you know, like like trim trim picked notes where it was like weirdly unrefined in a way, but presented so nicely. And I, I'd never heard anything like that. And I was like, even if I don't necessarily love this style of music or I, you know, I, I can't, I'm definitely not as much of a fan as, as Mark is. I was really appreciating the, the aesthetic of it. And I did like listening to it in doses. I was like, there's something here that I want to draw draw from. Like, I like it. And I found ever since Mark showed me that stuff back in the, yeah, whatever, like, you know, 1923 or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> like, Good year. <laughs> I found myself, like, injecting a little bit of that, even if subconsciously or just for a section. It might be not in a black metal song at all, but, like, just some of that aesthetic because I find it really fascinating. It was kind of one of those I never really thought to do that kind of moments. I remember you being super excited, and this was, yeah, 2007 or 2008 or something, you being super excited to, like, program Blast Beats over an evil sounding, like, really simple riff. <laughs> like, that's fun. That, that's how I, I could kind of tell that, like, yeah, even though you weren't into that style of music, that you were having a lot of fun. Just, like, the, the I don't know, it, it, there's something, like, really primal and, and pure and just, it's just fucking fun. You know, so yeah. vindicating or something. Yeah, satisfying. It was very satisfying. It was very fun. And it was also something I'd never really done. So I used to post on forums. I forget what forum it was, but they had like a monthly uh, monthly writing 
songwriting competition. There would always be a style. And one, one month it was black metal. And I was like, what is black metal? And this is before I met you, Mark. So like, this was like the first time someone I'd ever even, and I was like, is it just death metal? And they're like, no, 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 it's not. Um, and I kind of, and they gave me examples. And I guess I just didn't know what I was listening for. I was like, this just kind of sounds like death metal to me, you know? <laughs> and they're like, no, but it's just like all evil chords. And it's like a lot of trend picking and a lot of blast beats. And and I ended up submitting a song. And and, and they're, I remember they're like, and they're always in forests. And I actually wrote a song and I submitted it. It was called In a Forest. I remember that song. It's, on the, that song. it's in the Bulb archives. And it's totally not black metal. It's like mellow death in hindsight, you know? Total mellow death and almost like, technical like it's too way too technical and like i remember people are like yeah this is this is pretty cool but it's not black metal at all i was like i thought i understood the design <laughs> brief on this like i totally missed the i totally missed the mark and in hindsight i can hear how i completely missed the mark but i was so confounded at the time and i was like kind of frustrated with it and i think i think that, that you kind of you kind of helped me solve that and i was like oh yeah blast beats everywhere no palm mutes, like trim pick everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's supposed to be kind of messy. Even if you have like a good mix and good production, like it's not supposed to be that tight. It's not supposed, there's nothing supposed to be that refined about the performance, except for maybe the drummer, you know? And then, yeah, it's like, like taking that aesthetic and then, you know, I always think it's interesting because like black metal is obviously a subversion of a lot of popular tropes in metal and, and a lot of things that people gravitate towards very tight performances, very refined production, a lot of time spent on getting every the tones to work together and everything. So it's a complete subversion of that. But what we're doing is almost a complete subversion of black metal in that we're yep. very concerned with those things again. Like the, everything is packaged very tightly. And there is an aspect of like, oh, the takes don't need to be as tight as like, say, periphery, but but they're still pretty tight, even though they're messy by our standards. We like try to leave it as much as we can, but I think our ears are very attuned to like, things being tight, double tracked, like it's a lot more refined. So, so that in and of itself is like a subversion of, of what I think it's supposed to be in, in a way that I thought was very satisfying as well. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of intentionality too. I remember like we spent a lot of time on those tracks, on those guitar takes, making sure that they didn't sound too clean or too, too polished, you know? And like, mm -hmm. I think years of doing what we do in periphery, we're kind of just programmed to be that way you know, to, to, to make things sound a certain way. But uh, I mean, it's funny you mentioned this because I was going through the guitar stems of the tracks the other day because like, I'm trying to like organize uh, like tablature and transcriptions for them. And it's crazy. Like that stuff's pretty sloppy, like zeroed out. But the thing is, is you can't really tell in context because of how wild everything else is, the drums especially. And yeah, there was, there's a lot of care put into getting that sound, this uh, very human, loose, not too, not too tight sound, you know? Yeah. It's hard to do that, I think, because if you are trained to play well, I mean trained as in you have recorded in a certain way to where like you have gotten to the point where you know how to get tight, tight sounding guitars and like have, it takes a long time to be able to really do that well. It's almost how do you unlearn that? And so in some ways, to me, it sounds more difficult to do something where it's tight enough to be up to your standard, but also like intentionally not as tight as the, I don't know, the tightest. It just seems more difficult because there's like more of a gray area with it. I think, I think it's also just sort of understanding our own tolerance of it, but you have to understand as well, like 
when we're doing periphery, there's a lot of editing and comping and whatever. So a big part of it, it's like, I mean, I think we're pretty tight, but we're not that tight. So, so to get it to like periphery standards, and we've chilled out on this a lot, even with periphery, let be a bit more organic, but there's still a lot of comping. I think there was an acceptance here of like, just don't edit as much, just let it be, you know? But then there's also certain parts that need to be really tight for effect. So those we would nit nitpick. And it's just sort of section by section, but it's just an overall philosophy of just let it go. Don't don't edit it. Don't fix it. And that's probably the hardest part. That Just on instinct, it's like, okay, we're going to fix that. We need to retake that. And it's a fine line because if you do it too far, that just sounds like shit. So, you know, I think Mark and I are on the same page. We're looking for the same thing. So we kind of identified when it needed to be edited and when we should leave it alone and when it's got sort of I think the most important thing is get the character we want it we want everything to have character we didn't want it to because the more you edit stuff and the more everything's perfect the more sterile it becomes so it was trying to get everything to be polished in a way but to where it would retain character and still sound like a live played guitar I didn't want things to ever really sound edited at any point you know yeah, totally. Honestly, that just sounds so difficult because I've, you know, I've tried to do stuff like that. It just sounds so difficult to me because, you know, when you have decided I'm going to track the tightest guitars ever, that's what we're doing. You just like, it's difficult, but it's a very simple goal. The criteria is like crystal clear, going to get them as tight as possible. And so um, it's super easy to focus in on it. But this other one, there's with the haunted, like the Haunted Shores approach it's like a feel which is a lot harder is because you have to just go with your gut i think a lot like does yeah does this feel cool does it feel right the goal is definitely more vague more nebulous than than you know having everything be tight but yeah i mean i think at the end of the day it, like what you said it just goes down to your gut and it knows it just goes back to you kind of knowing what you're going for you know and, and we're looking for a very your clear aesthetic with it, you know, like we both knew what we wanted. I, I think if we were on different pages with that, it would be a lot more difficult. But, you know, I think we've been doing this so long together, even though, I mean, shit, we only really have one and a half albums under Haunted Shores, <laughs> but like we've had a lot of time to um, to write this music. I mean, the, the first Haunted Shores stuff we wrote together was in 2007, 2008. So like, I think we've been going for kind of a similar thing for a long time. So that, that, I think that's what makes it easier because honestly, it doesn't feel... Like, if anything, it's kind of cool because I remember sometimes, like, we'd be going through a DI that I recorded at home, and then we'd plug it into Misha's setup, and then he'd be, we'd be listening. Normally with Periphery, there'd be no question. No, nah, where are you doing it? Just because we can always get it tighter. We can always get it tighter. But sometimes we'd hear the DI tracks and be like, nah, good enough. Black metal, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> and and more it. importantly, it had character. If it had, it was about the character. Yeah, like Mark said... It would, it, I wouldn't say, I, I can see why it would be hard, especially if you're working with someone else and you're not on the same page. But it's kind of this thing, and like like Mark said, it's it's not really a discussion. It's just like a look we'll give, give each other. It's like, <laughs> is that good or not? You know, it's like we don't really argue about that. So we don't. We, we, I think we're just on the same page. We don't really argue about much of anything. So, um, so it was just kind of a feel thing, and we're both looking for the same feel. Like we just, I guess we're lucky enough to be on the same page there. So, yeah, if like Mark did a take at home, and it sounds good overall in context, you know. I don't care about the take itself. I care about like how it sounds in context. Does it have good character? Fuck yeah. We just save a little bit of time. We're good to go. We don't need to redo it. Maybe we need to fix a couple notes. Like I remember the certain things or certain things I'm picky with where it's like, oh, that's what you're playing. I didn't even know you were playing that because these couple notes didn't pop through. It was noisy or it wasn't really so we'd punch in notes that clarity or like like 
there would be actual notes that like, you know, needed to pop through so that you could hear what the riff was playing. That's stuff mm-hmm. I'm a bit picky with and that we might edit around and that's not very black metal, I guess. <laughs> but like, but aside from that, from, from things like that, where it's like, oh, there's sort of notes missing or people might not realize it. Like, especially if it's a like, Mark has all really cool moves he does. And it's like, they don't realize what's actually going there. It's kind of getting jumbled up. That will do. But then, then other than that, it's really just about character more than anything else. I just want everything to have good character. It's almost like the line is when the idea starts to get obscured. That's the line. Yeah. Just in intricate stuff, let's say. Or there's certain things. Mark's right hand technique is phenomenal. It's like one of the best I've ever heard. It's got this very percussive quality and it can match up with kicks very, very well in a way where, where, it has an effect of its own. So this kind of goes against like what I'm saying, but there the effect and the character was that. So if that was like kind of sloppy, it wouldn't have the same effect. Uh, like like in, in Hellfire, you know, there's a fast, fast picking session. And that was a take that you just did at home. And it's like, I, I didn't even want to touch that because even if we got it technically tighter, it might not sound as good. So the the general was character, which I know is um, it's a bit vague. But it is kind of an instinct and a feeling. Yeah, it's vague, but like you know it when you hear it. Oh, absolutely. And more importantly, it's not I I know. It's like we both know. We both kind of look at each other and we're like, yeah. There's parts I remember, you know, like tracking some of the the notier, crazier bits. They just kind of make sense because I know what's going on. But then I would sort of show you the part on guitar and you'd be like, that's weird. I don't hear those notes at all. And so, to but like to me, I don't notice that. You know, so we go back in and he'll kind of show me what he's talking about. Like, see, these notes, I don't even hear those because of whatever. It was tracked weird or something like that or just maybe a little bit messy. So we'd go back and just, you know, doctor that stuff up. One sort of litmus test, you know, we were reamping. It really needs to sound like a played performance. If it starts to sound like a chopped up edited performance, I mean, you know what that sounds like. Anyone who's sort of recorded and produced knows that there's that level where you could get very sort of note by note with it and it'll have this incredible punch you know but it doesn't really sound like a played guitar anymore i was trying to avoid that i didn't want that to ever be how i I wanted it so that if you were soloing a guitar track it sounded like someone was actually playing through the whole performance like what you just described me is like most of what people think is like modern prog music you know what i mean i think so too i'm not gonna i don't want to like sit here and like you know speak ill of other players and stuff but yeah it's very easy to it's very easy to, to, to you know, to, to spot that out when you hear it. It's, yeah, I mean, you hear it everywhere. You open Instagram or TikTok and you hear a guitar player playing. Like, it looks like they're playing in their bedroom, but what's coming out of the guitar is not. Like, we know the sound. Yeah. But I've had people who don't play guitar who don't really know. They're like, man, like, this is incredible. This guitar is incredible. And the thing is that, like, fair play to them. A lot of times, like, these are very creative things. So I'll give them, like, like 10 out of 10 for creativity. But I'm like, that's not what a guitar sounds like. If you heard that in the room, they might be a really good guitarist and, and, and they'll play it very, very well, but it won't sound like it. Like, what you're hearing is not sort of representative of what a played guitar sounds like. And, you know, that's a style of music. It might be for effect. I, I'm not really making a judgment as to, like, what that is. But what I do know is that I did not want us to have that. So I didn't want yep. us to ever be mistaken for that. Like I wanted it to have that sound where like, and, and ironically it's not because like this is edited and chopped together and stuff, you know, but just done in a way where, where it sounds as natural as possible, where it's, if you were to close your eyes, you could visualize someone actually playing through uh, the part as if it were one take from the beginning of the song to the end of the song. I think it's important to have parameters or just like boundaries to 
what you're going for. Cause if not, you could get to that aesthetic you didn't want. Like it's, it's, uh, it's weird cause it's not easy to get to it, but it's easy to get to it if you're not like being intentional about everything you're doing. Yeah. Well, even uh, black metal Nazi meth head had rules, right? So you yeah. can have them too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly it though is uh, I think boundaries are a good thing. Um, when it comes to music, which is weird because I also feel like no boundaries is a good thing, but you can go down bad paths or the wrong path if you're not at least conscious of what you're going for, I think. Well, if we're getting philosophical about it, I think the way to sort of wrap that up is just it's good to have no boundaries in the scope of what you want to achieve. Someone would be like, you can't mix death metal and black metal and have good production. It's like, yeah, we can. We can do whatever we want. We could have fart noises over the whole thing if we wanted to. People might not like it, but we could do whatever we want. But then we have boundaries. It's like, what kind of farts will we use? You know, because <laughs> like, there are different types. Yeah, there there's are. Many, there's many, many different categories. We could go. We could get into all those categories now. But no, like my point is just like the no boundaries thing is just you know from a holistic point of view, just you could do whatever you want. But what makes it just not everything and nothing all at once are the boundaries that you choose and how you respect them. That's what makes it your sound. That's what makes it yours. That's what makes it you feel happy about what you're doing. And these are boundaries that I think often, I mean, it's a chicken or the egg thing, but are dictated or dictate chemistry. It's why Mark and I have always worked well together is because I think we're really, we really see eye to eye. Like I said, there's never been much conversation about this. It's always been a feel and kind of a nod. Like, are we getting this? Yeah. No, no, this isn't really hitting the mark. Let's, let's table it, work on something else. It's oftentimes things that are happening in the abstract. So it's entirely just a, a, a reflexive thing to, to hearing it and be like, this isn't, I don't know what. We'll try a few things that's still not working. Uh, the last track on the album, for example, is, is, is something that we actually wrote originally for the last album, for, for Viscera, and just could not get it to work. It, and we both felt like there's something here, something here. The arrangement's not working. The riffs are really cool, but it just feels like like a riff salad. And like this was respecting our boundaries of like this is not hitting the mark. This We have a vision for this, and this is not that, right? And then we were able to rework it, completely rework it. It's a very different song now, and reimagine it. And and now it fit within our standards and boundaries for what we had for for this album. So much so that we made it the closer. I realize that we're not sitting here with the song open and playing it, but just out of curiosity, what are the types of things that you changed about it? Like, what about it? Okay, so you're saying that it was riff salady before. What did you change before we get into the actual changes that we made? I remember the idea of that song was it was like a triplet feel thrashy kind of thing, like one, two, three, one, two, three, da, 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 kind of like there's two other songs on the record that have that, like um, Immaterial has that thing going on and When in Oslo has that going on too, like Blast Beats with a, with the triplet feel or 6-8 or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, that was how I looked at the song and I think that's how Misha looked at it for for a long time. Like we have this song in that feel and it's kind of thrashy, but then I think the real light bulb moment came when I think it was you who did this, Mish. You, you took the, um, I think the main progression and just put like a just a just a groove, like a like a Opeth, like a Blackwater Park kind of groove over yeah. it, and it made that the first real thing that you heard in the song, Nocturnal Hours, the last song on the record. But 
that was when like the idea came to us is like, oh, I could be this kind of song if we want it to. It can evolve into thrasher sections as opposed to just being a thrash song or starting as a thrash song. It was like the six, eight thrash beats and blast beats the whole time. And it was a lot of really cool riffs, but it was just like cool riff, cool riff, cool riff, cool riff. And it was like, this song isn't saying anything. It doesn't make me feel anything. It's not going anywhere. I don't know how to start it. I don't know how to end it. And it started with that clean thing, but it either went into a blast beat version of that or it went into like the, the section after that. And it was like, maybe we should just play off of this. And yeah, it's called Nocturnal Hours because it's totally a Blackwater Park vibe. That's a lyric from the Drapery Falls off of Blackwater Park. So it's like we're wearing, wearing that on our sleeve pretty hard on that one, the, the Opeth uh, vibe and influence on that. I was like, let's let it drag on this first riff the way that Opeth would. They always like play their riffs like, like too many times, but yeah. like in the best way. Because they know when they have a good progression, they, they know. They get their money's worth on those riffs. I don't have the balls to do that, and I always just respect uh, them for doing that. They're like, yep, this is a sixth section. You're going to hear it eight times, you know? <laughs> and um, then another eight times with a trim-picked <laughs> reverb. Guitar yeah. lead line over. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I was like, I was like, let's 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 do that. Let's, and then that kind of changed the vibe and the context of the song and allowed us to rework the the riffs and rework the feel. Because then all of a sudden, like having a backbeat made a lot more sense. It wasn't just being thrown to break up thrashy riffs or blast beats. And then when the blast beats would come in, then they they had impact, which was what what was happening. Is this problem that I have with like? If, I guess if you're gonna do like like sort of true black metal, you can. Have, Blast beats the whole way through the song, right? Because that's kind of the sound, right? Yep. But with this kind of mix and whatever, if you just do blast beats the whole time, it gets very stale. And with program drums, even even more so, you know, with everything being kind of perfect, even more so. So I having this problem. Where I was just like, there's too many blast beat sections, just too much. Then and, and I'm getting tired. If I'm getting fatigued, then everyone else is going to get fatigued too. So that was it. Was just like kind of taking an honest look, but. Sometimes, yeah, you have to just pick up a song seven years later and fix it. <laughs> it's interesting to me, like the idea of picking up an old song and fixing it versus the idea of, well, I didn't finish this song for a reason, so fuck it. Do you guys do that in Periphery ever? Oh, my God. Yeah. I take pride in like being this way. Like My mind always goes to place. Mish, you know, this is like if you have a riff that's in seven in, on drop, in drop C tuning or something like that. And I'm like, you know what else is in drop C and in seven? This riff from 2011. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if these match up. What is it? What BPM? 125? Oh, this one's like 120. We should see if we can smash them together. I think sometimes there's a lot of riffs. And ideas and songs. I'm talking now in the periphery context since since you asked about periphery. There's plenty of ideas that for one reason or another get dropped or our attention goes elsewhere because of reasons that are not really the song's fault. Contextually, maybe they just don't make sense when like put up against the rest of the songs on any given record that we're working on. Maybe another song kind of does that thing a little better or all five members of the band are more excited about another song that kind of has that energy of the song that gets scrapped but i mean the list goes on and on and on it's not necessarily a bad song or a bad idea i mean if you if we were to go back to our band dropbox i mean there's probably hundreds of ideas there that are worthy of being you know frankensteined all over again and in fact every periphery record there's at least you know one to three songs that that are taken from demos that were scrapped and then sort of reworked. But uh, it's just time and perspective, I think, you know? Like you go five, seven, eight years without hearing something and come back to it, you can think 
something completely different of it. I guess it's like a movie or something like that, you know, like maybe you're not ready to watch something or you're not ready to hear something. And then you, you watch it or hear it years later, uh, you, you approach it a different way based on who you are at that moment. So we call it the, uh, the riff graveyard, you know, and there's a lot metal. of riffs in that graveyard. And for me personally, I don't know. I have a really bad memory. Remember we opened it up. It was called Song 3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many Song 3s do you have? <laughs> oh, God, let, let's not count them. So I felt like I was almost hearing it. I remember I remembered the first riff, and I remembered, like, one other riff, and I felt like I was hearing a lot of these riffs for the first time. A lot of riffs that I think I wrote that I forgot that I wrote, and I f- assumed that Mark wrote them. And, and he was like, no, I think that's yours. You know, like, I don't even remember writing these things. So th- some of these things are just written on the spot, like, as a reflex. It's not even a, enough of a conscious thought for me to remember that I wrote it or what I was thinking or what I was going for. Mm-hmm. It's one of these riffs. I'm still not certain whether it's my riff or your riff. The only reason it was a, it was a concern is because I had to do a playthrough and I was like, Mark, teach me how to play this. And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> That's not my riff. I don't know that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is your riff. He's like, no, I don't, I don't know how to play that one. I think it's yours. I was like, fuck. But it's like that. It's like rediscovering. It's like hearing, hearing something that you completely forgot about. So then it's like, because there's also a riff sound like, oh, this sucks. This is trash. Like, fuck this. We're never going to use this. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but this one was one where it was like kind of like this treasure trove. This is like discovery. It's like, oh, there's potential. Like, why? I remember we're like, why did we ditch this? And then by the end of the song, we're like, oh, I, I know why. Cause it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of fatiguing. But I was like, but then we were also like, you know, I feel like we could, I feel like we could solve it. It's a, it's a puzzle. It's like, I feel like we could, we could solve this puzzle. We, we may have the tools. We may have the context. We may have the energy to solve this puzzle and just kind of threw different things at it. Maybe we have more experience now. It's been a little bit of time. I don't know, but, or maybe we just got lucky, but in the end, I was very happy, very, very happy with, with, with how the song changed. And, you know, if anyone's listening to this and and struggles with this kind of stuff and can relate, it's looking for, for songwriting tips. One, one of the, one of the things I found, and maybe Mark, you can, you can add into this on your end, but I've found that oftentimes what will take me from a fuck no, no way, this song is fucking useless, to like, fuck yeah, this is sick, is not that big a change. It's always less drastic a change than I think. Mm-hmm. And small things go a really long way. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned because it feels almost intuitively like this is so off the mark that, and no pun, sorry, Mark, don't mean to, didn't <laughs> mean to trigger rack, you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it's so, it's so off, it's so off the mark that surely it would require something massive, an overhaul, um, trash half the song. These riffs are all terrible. And then you realize that with kind of some, some changes, substantial, but not as substantial as you think. And, and, and sometimes even minor changes, not only does the song get better, but then these other parts that you thought kind of suck, kind of come to life. Cause it's it's a it's a mix and it's and it it all interacts right and it's all in context and then genuinely like when I think about some of the songs I'm like man like there was a point in time where I thought this song was horrible and it became one of my favorites or something I'm very proud of it's shocking and when I think about the difference it's not that different it's just yeah. these little moves so that's something I'm just putting out there as something I've learned because it's something I've struggled with and something that that's been difficult and sometimes has prevented us from putting us on an album for years and years and years. Uh, Nocturnal Hours is not the only example of this. And that, that feeling and that sort of that moment, 
at least collectively in the studio, whether it's you and I or you, me and Jake with Periphery, where you know or when someone in the room has unlocked something that kind of changes the collective um, approval of it or, or liking of it, when that happens and you're like, and the light bulb comes on is like the most vindicating triumphant thing, even more so than writing a sick part yeah. on the spot, you know, like that feeling. Cause it's like, I don't know. It just feels like that's some real magic at work there because of all the things that, that, that he said, like for some reason now the part after it sounds better because we fixed some random thing with the riff that preceded it. You know, it's, it just has this domino effect and uh, it's a really good feeling. I remember that being one of the the best feelings in that whole process was finally getting that fucking song to work right, you know? It's vindicating because we always felt like there was something there and we just couldn't quite get it because there's ideas where we're like, eh, it's okay, but not really feeling it. And if those end up being worked, it's like, oh, that's surprising, that's cool. Or or it just fades into the ether and no one ever hears it, right? But when you, it's always a little frustrating when you have when you have one that like as you're working on it, I'm like, oh, this is really cool, and there's parts that are really cool. It just never comes together, and you're like, I mean, there's there's uh, riff riff graveyard uh, riff graveyard ideas like that that still frustrate me, like candy, for mm, example, right? Yeah, like yeah. which we'll never get the hang of that one. But once we do, once but, we do. But, but, but if we ever do, it will be so satisfying because it'll be like, I knew it, I knew that there was something in this, you know. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I like the way you put it about uh, solving the puzzle because I think that that's really what it is. It can be that there's just one piece missing that keeps it from being whole. When you know that there's a, something there, I do think that the context the context is everything because I think at certain points in time, we are just not in the right headspace 
to understand what the solution is to the puzzle. Something that time or perspective or different context could provide. But like, I think that if you trust your intuition, I think your musical intuition, you're probably right about a, about a song that it's not solved, but there's something there. I think that that's a super valuable thing to know because like you said, some of those become your favorite songs. And I think that's valuable because, well, it says a lot if uh, you're able to hang on to an idea for almost a decade and still think it's strong, like still you think it's worth revisiting. I mean, it says a lot about the strength of the idea, I think. Because I'm sure you have opened up stuff from 10 years ago or something and been like, God, this is embarrassing. Oh, yeah. yeah, Mostly. Yeah. Mostly. Well, yeah, <laughs> but if you open something from 10 years ago and are like, damn, this is pretty fucking cool, but I know why we didn't use it or something. It just like meanders or yeah. whatever, but we can do something with it and you do something with it. I mean, that that is pretty strong, I think, because it stood the test of time. Well, I, you know, I've thought about this before because I've sort of pondered the sentiment that like let's say you're working on a brand new album that it should all be brand new riffs and we we've been on these bands especially with periphery if we're shifting to periphery for a second where we'll bring back these older songs these og bulb bulb songs or riffs or ideas or you know mm -hmm. the things that like old school fans will appreciate to, to a lot of people it's new stuff but people be like oh man like you know it's just recycling old riffs or whatever but at the same time, I'm like, man, just because the idea is old or wasn't written in this little period of time, does that make it any less valid an idea, you know? And I think I bought into that at one point where I was like, yeah, like, like this is for this album. It should be fresh. It should be written right now. But then I started to realize, I was like, man, it, I, I don't really control when this create, creativity happens. If I got yeah. lucky and stumbled upon this cool idea, it shouldn't really matter that it came out last week or last month or 10 years ago. I agree with you. I'm writing stuff right now and I've been going through the catalog and I mean the catalog dating back to the late nineties, looking at demos and just like shit that maybe got recorded, but didn't get released. Maybe the record company cut it or hated it for some weird reason or like whatever, but just I've been looking at everything and been like, man, it would be a disservice to this sick idea just because it's old doesn't make it not valid. I mean, you're referencing Blackwater Park, right? Like that's old. Anything that makes it not valid just because it's old. I mean, the fact that it got released, I don't think makes it more or less valid. So I don't know. I think that just because something's old doesn't mean that it's invalid. I would urge anybody out there listening, you know, if there's a handful of ideas or if there's one idea that's really frustrating them just to set it aside and keep it in a place like a hard drive or your, your Dropbox or wherever, just let it sit there, let it rot there for however long. And, and, uh, and I think an, another, another reason this happens so much with periphery and haunted shores too, is, is I've kind of developed this pattern and, and I learned, I, th I think I learned this from Misha and, and even Jake too, to an extent is when something's frustrating you and you can't solve this puzzle to so just put it down and do your best to forget about it and move on to the next thing this kind of next song mentality and just keep it going, you know, cause you're, you'll, you'll, you'll find something you're happy with eventually, whether it's just a, a demo or just a couple of riffs or something like that. And then nothing happens to that old song that didn't work that one time, you know, it's, it's just, it just sits there and you can um, get back to it whenever. And, and I think the beauty of where we're at now is all that stuff is still untouched 
And I mean, like Misha said, a lot of it is not really worthy of it, but- Some is. Yeah, some is. You'll find the occasional gem in there or, or idea where it's mostly shit, but there's, you know, some parts that can be reworked. It's just, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to draw from. So um, I would urge anybody out there who's, who writes prolifically or likes to do it habitually is just uh, keep all that stuff easily accessible. Don't put in a hard drive and, you know, put it in your basement, keep it right on your computer. Also something you touched on, the reasons for why you don't use something are interesting. It might not be that it's bad. It might just be that it didn't work. Or if you're working with an external producer, it could be the producer didn't like it or something. It could be awesome, but just for whatever reason, that record you were making with that producer, it didn't jive at, for whatever reason, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. There's so many reasons for why an idea could get ditched besides the idea sucking. I mean, some ideas do suck. Yeah. It's important to be able to tell the difference. Being able to laugh about it, just like we're doing now, is also helpful because there's also the, uh, you know, there's the personal side of getting your shit cut and realizing that it sucks is like being okay with that. There's some people out there who I'm sure don't really think that any of their stuff sucks and makes them difficult to work suck. with. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like it's a rule that if you don't kind of think your stuff sucks, you probably suck. Well, except for me. I've never <laughs> written a bad thing in my life. Well, you're the exception, though. He's the only one. Yeah, I'm the only one ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> Mozart, piece of shit. <laughs> Total. Hack. 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 Total hack. TikTok influencer hack. <laughs> First off, that guy hasn't even released an album in forever, and everyone acts like he's all amazing. Like, <laughs> prolific my ass. Just had rich parents or something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> parents yeah. bomb an orchestra or whatever. Yeah, I mean, overhyped, overblown. He went from arenas <laughs> to, like, small clubs, right? He was doing House of Blues Chicago, and then he went out to, like, Joliet. I remember. Dude, I haven't even seen him play in like a century. So like, fuck that guy. Pretty sad. Sad. Out of curiosity, like, do you guys like your own music? And I, I don't mean when you're working on it. Okay. Because when you're working on it, obviously you have to be stoked on it. But like, once it's done, do you like it? I need space. I don't listen to it. I don't listen to, I don't listen to any of that stuff. Hear me out here. Maybe you do this too, but like I'll go months and months and months without listening to it. And then I'll get a vinyl test press or something like that where I have to listen to it. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh man, this is pretty awesome. You know, by then I have enough sort of time and perspective to like remove as much emotionality and bias from it as possible. I usually do one customary listen of every release where I don't have to listen to it which is like the day it comes out. And I try mm. to just picture that I'm like a fan who's never heard it before, you know? And I'm like, I wonder what they would think of this. And then I don't listen to it and it'll probably be a few years. I can't tell you the last time I've like listened to a release I've put out in its entirety other than that one day. I don't know if I ever have. When you do that, do you cosplay as a random person in like... <laughs> I don't cosplay as a random person because of that. <laughs> I mean, that's my, for you to talk about my things I'm into, that's fine. But yeah, it elevates the experience. Are you able to get into that uh, headspace? Not really. No, it's not, it's not about the headspace. It's, just, it's more just like a, a custom. It's just something like, if anything, it signifies the end of it, you know, because for me, yep. I really enjoy writing. And this is, this is kind of been the way I am with a lot of things in my life. It's, I enjoy the process. I enjoy the chase. I enjoy solving the puzzle. I enjoy building the Lego. I don't really play with it after it's done, you know, and then I'll make mm -hmm. display it or whatever. But it's the assembling and the building and the writing of the thing that I, that I really enjoy. So once that's done, it's like, cool, 
you know, I build Lego, whatever. I'll play with it for like like a few minutes. I'm like, cool, put it on display. Let's build the next one. It's kind of the same thing. I'm listening to it once. Kind of signifies the end of it. And I'll probably like hear the song. You know, I'll, the 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 most I'll hear it. But it's never willing. It's it's always like a a, a utilitarian thing. Uh, it's like a practicing for a, a tour, or whatever you know, or trying to learn learn it for tour. Or, mm-hmm. or, and in the case of like haunted shores, like for for a playthrough or something like that. We're, we're getting test presses, so I'm going to have to listen to the album. By the time I've done all the listens that I, I have to do, I'm kind of good. You know, I, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. You know what it's like? It's like in like an RPG, like a role playing. I'm about to go full incel right now. <laughs> Grinding in, a, in an RPG, getting your stats more power, it's so satisfying. You're like building this super insane character. And then by the time you over level and you over grind, you can like walk on water and like one shot dragons and stuff. And you're like, this is cool. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm done with this game now. <laughs> Good. I can move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is it is kind of weird, but I do like it and I am proud of it. But I've also spent enough time, especially having mixed it and all that stuff. I'm just kind of sick of it by the end. Now it's nice because it's been a little while since I, when I listened to the test press the other day, um, we need another test press, I think, because this one was kind of weird, but. I'm I'm probably gonna have to listen to it again. I won't mind that. But those last few masters, the revisions, it was just like God. I have to. It's a chore listening to that. Yeah, it becomes kind of painful when once you start to get to that part of the process. Always. How long is it usually between projects for you to be able to start writing again, or is it just a constant sort of thing? I didn't have much of a choice here. It was a lot of writing. It was like this session was just sort of crammed between periphery sessions. Generally, I like to have a little bit of downtime, but. Life doesn't always afford you that uh, that luxury, so it's just as it as it happens. If I if I have my way, I like to have a bit of a break. But um, I can't believe you guys did two records like that. That just seems insane. Well, I also had just finished the 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 bulb record, so for me it was just like three projects like back to back. That's fucking insane. When I flew out to to Misha to like get this stuff started with him, I remember him being in the midst of that and like feeling bad, you know, that I was bringing some of this material to him at a time when like he was swamped with so many projects. But I remember like initially the reason I wanted to do another one was because we just had our tours canceled at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So like on paper, it was like, oh, this is a perfect time to revisit Haunted Shores. We should do something with this. And it was great for the initial demoing, like in the very beginning. But that's the thing with the band where so many of us have different projects and interests on the side. It's like then managing that. And this is, I think, the trap that we fell into all while trying to like manage periphery around it. It wasn't the cleanest process. Do I think the product suffered? No. I think it came out I think I took a few years off my life. That's all. But, you know, (laughs) because I was effectively writing for five projects. I was writing for Periphery, Solo Album, Haunted Shores, GGD, and Horizon Devices. It was a lot to sort of juggle and manage. And I I don't think the product suffered because I wouldn't be able to live with myself if it did. But it just meant putting that much more work and stress when I was just absolutely tapped and all I wanted was just a break. So where do you find it when you are tapped? Therapy, I guess. I don't know. All right. You just suck it up and deal with it. Like it'll just be sit over. down and make more. Just deal with it. Just, it sucked. It really sucked. Uh, I won't, I won't probably allow myself to get in that bad a position again. Also knowing that like when it's done, I'll feel really, I'll be very grateful. But I remember yeah, you told me that your new year's resolution, I think a year or two ago was like, I want to be, I want to have a productive year. You know, because yeah. I think you were, we, we were coming from, I remember I was in the same boat. You're coming from a place where I felt a little bit like I could have done more creatively, you know, I could have done more. And 
what I think happened, I think in your case especially, is maybe an overreaction to that, was maybe taking on a lot of things. Oh, yeah, I also did Animals as Leaders. That's right. I forgot. Solo album, then Haunted Chores, then Periphery, and all while doing that. That's a lot of stuff. I felt like that year I was like, man, I didn't write anything. I was like, can I even write anymore? So then I overloaded. You know, in your mind you're like, Oh, uh, you know, this will slot in here and that will be there and then this will get done. And I, I don't, I, I should know better. I really should know better. And then, of course, everything all went wrong and everything got delayed and pushed together. It's difficult. But at the very least, I was, I, I'm, I could be proud of like having written a lot and not quantity, but stuff that I'm, that I'm genuinely proud of and stuff that I was very happy with, you know, on all ends. I don't feel like any of those projects were compromised in any way creatively. They were, they were kind of what I wanted to do, and, they, and I got what I wanted out of them, just the cost of stress and time. That sentiment of I feel like I could have done more, it's interesting because uh, I have felt that, you know, I mean, I think I, I always feel that. But, like, when there's certain people in my life over the years where I have vocalized that, where their reaction is like, dude, take a break. It's all good. And then other people that are like, yeah, me too. I want to do more. It's just interesting to me because like that feeling of I could have done more. Whenever I feel that way, I know I'm right. So like when someone is like, bro, you should take it easy. You, you did a lot. I don't let myself believe them because they're wrong because I know that I could have done more. doesn't matter what they think. Yeah, I have this um, it's just guideline now, like money, stress, time being the sort of three factors for everything or general three factors and everything sort of this equation of, of cost. I'm fortunate now to where a lot of these decisions don't have to revolve around money, but it seems I'm very willing to donate inordinate amounts of, of stress and time to things that don't always need to have that much stress and time in there. And it's one of these things like you're talking about where it's like you could have done more because you could have Oh, maybe I was only at 95% capacity and felt like crap. I could have been 100 felt even more like crap. Your friend's like, dude, take a break. <laughs> I will tell you one result of this is like the last six months of last year were, were pretty tough with everything sort of culminating and me feeling absolutely just drained. Just, you know, I remember in like September, October, just looking and it's like until December, I'm not going to have a day off. I'm not going to have a day to breathe. If I did get like a day off, it was a day of just pure recuperation. It didn't even feel like a day off. It was like, oh my God, back to it. And I was like, this is crazy. And there's not really any way out of it. Certainly not any way out of it without really screwing up some plans or, or, or screwing up people I care about or projects I care about. So I'm going to suck it up. But I've always struggled with what you're talking about, where I feel like I could do more. I feel like I'm lazy if I'm not hustling or, or whatever. But now I think that was such a sort of rock bottom moment for me that now this year, unknowingly, it's not really a resolution or anything, but like, it's just, I'm just being lazy. I'm being a lot more lazy and I'm, and I'm not allowing myself to get overworked. I'm saying no to a lot more stuff. For how long? As long as I can manage, man. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like more <laughs> desperation here. Me too. I'm, I'm going to find out it's it, because it's like, I don't want to feel that way, man. Like that, that was Fair not, enough. that was not cool. Like that was, that was a, that was a moment where I was like, this is not sustainable. Maybe it's cause I'm getting older or maybe I really just did take on too much, but it was starting to affect a lot of other stuff in, in a really negative way. And it was making me feel horrible. So I'm sort of like the guilt is not enough to stop me from doing it now because the, 
the desperation I was feeling then was worse. So I sort of traded, that guilt can sort of sit in the back and it'll always just sort of sit there. But now the fear of feeling like that, again, is the more powerful <laughs> motivator. So that allows me to, to take it a bit more easy. Now, you're right. I don't know how long it'll last. Uh, I hope it lasts a while, but, um, but I feel like I'm doing a better job at it than I've done in the past. So at least it's a bit of progress. The not doing enough thing is such a blessing and a curse at the same time, because I feel like uh, if you have like, lofty goals for your life, feeling like you aren't doing enough or could do more is part of what allows you to fulfill those goals or even come close to them or at least go in that direction. It's like, at least for me, and I really do think that it's pretty universal, that feeling is part of what creates the momentum. On the other hand, that feeling sucks and it's like eternal torture. So it's just... It's a blessing and a curse because I feel like if you don't have that feeling, what are you going to do? Like, why would you do anything if you didn't feel that way? I feel bad that you had to go through that last year. But, you know, I feel like the only way to, like, find a balance that you walk permanently or, like, to find some kind of compromise that you can sustain is to know what the extremes feel like. And now you know what the extremes feel like. And as long as you don't forget about it in two years time or something like that, as long as you keep it fresh. It's, and, you know, this year, this year's looking like it's going to be pretty good, right? I mean, we have yeah. just the periphery record going on and there's not a lot to sort of dilute the, the water. I've been keeping busy and writing too. I just haven't been overloading myself, you know? So the balance, it's all about yeah. the balance, you know? But it's finding that balance and maybe finding that balance for where I'm at in my life now. Like maybe... You know, I don't remember exactly what it was like, but maybe in my 20s, I would have been able to handle this without any problems. But now, now it's a little bit more difficult. So just maybe it's a recalibration. But you're right. Sometimes you have to find the limit to understand where it is. And that was definitely my limit. So don't take six projects on at the same time or back to back. Yeah, I mean, unless you're Devin Townsend, probably not. <laughs> I think even he doesn't enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. And it's the sort of uh, the, the sort of uh, distillation of that feeling of like, I could be doing more, you know, and, 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 and sort of its ugly side. Because it is a double-edged sword. And you're right. It, it's easy to justify it as well when you look at it, like you were saying, where, oh, I'm where I'm at and, I'm, and I have things I'm grateful for and things that I feel lucky about because of this, this personality trait. And it's easy then to overlook the bad sides mm -hmm. and, and the, the damage it's doing to your life in favor of all the positives when really you should be looking at just sort of a facet in general that has positive and negative things and doing more of a cost benefit on like, okay, so with this application, is this really benefiting more than it costs? Because with the application last year, it wasn't. But now I think I found a better balance where it is. It is sort of more in line with, with what I'm looking for. That makes sense. It also sounds incredibly difficult to find, but I do agree that you're only going to know it if you actually test what the boundaries are. Yeah, it's different for everybody. And uh, it's something I work on with my therapist as well. And it's also something that you need to take action on. It's very, talk is cheap. And I think these things in a vacuum are very easy to acknowledge and recognize. It's in the moment when you're feeling that guilt and you're like, oh, well, I'll just take this one project. It'll be fine. It's just be a couple weeks work. What's the big deal, you know? To learn to say no to certain things and be like, no, 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 no. This is how we, uh, this is how we fall into that trap. You know, this is how it begins. Yeah. Well, I think also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, at least for me, I have gotten to a point where I'm more capable of saying no 
the things because I feel more secure in, I guess, my position on earth and also in the fact that if I say no to something, that that doesn't mean that I'm like making a terrible decision and like some opportunity is just going to disappear and it's going to fuck everything over, which is how I used to feel. So, which is why I would not say no to things, but like, is part of it feeling a little more secure about like everything? No, no, I still, right, have, I still have that. I still have that, that, that Jewish guilt of like, like I'm hearing my mom being like, this is why you're going to be homeless, you know, or like whatever. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. My dad telling me I, you know, work at a gas station or something. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's irrational. It's purely irrational, but it's kind of just understanding that that, that instinct isn't necessarily right. There's an intellectual side to this and then there's an emotional side and the emotional side can sort of completely ignore the intellectual side. <laughs> oh, that side's not fixed. Yeah, intellectually no. I'm able to talk myself down better because I have evidence I guess that I didn't have in my 20s so what I do now when I'm starting to feel crazy is I look at the data around me and I'm like look this happened this happened this happened it's cool you can turn this thing down the world is not going to implode I think one of the complications for me so I'm very good at, at turning things down from like other people but when we're talking about personal projects let's say periphery haunted chores uh, Gecko Drums, Horizon Devices, which are like, you know, my companies, I have a vested interest in them. I have a vested interest in all of these. There's this weird sense of like, I'm disappointing people, you know? Then saying no becomes a lot harder because now I'm saying no to people mm -hmm. I really care about and to projects I really care about and things that, I think that's where it gets a little bit more murky. So what you're talking about, like if it's other things and whatever, I have gotten a lot better at that. And my therapist told me something, or, you know, he asked me something really interesting one day. He's like, so, you know, you said that you own these companies and you own your label and you own everything. He's like, didn't you tell me that you became the boss of these things so that people wouldn't be able to force you to do things, right? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. He's like, so don't you think it's interesting that like you're in a position where you could say no to these things, but you've chosen not to, to exercise that? I was like, I guess, I guess that's true. He's like, why... Why not say uh, why not say no to these things? And I realized it was all about just disappointing people and feeling feeling like I was going to disappoint people. And that's the irrational part. That's the part where it's like it does it doesn't really make sense. Anyways, we're going like deep into like therapist isn't, stuff right now, but like <laughs> that's kind of isn't it different though? Like if you're the one telling yourself to do something versus a boss you don't want. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like fighting against yourself because part of me really wants these projects to exist and they want to be a certain way. And I'm like, oh, if I just put another, oh, I could just take this project on. We'll just squeeze it in here. It'll be fine. Plus it'll make Mark happy and he's right. We could get this out and like, it'll make me happy. It's not just about other people. It's like when you have a vested interest in these things, of course you want to say yes. That's where I've had to learn. I think there's a, like, as far as responsibility of the people in the environment, like, cause I remember it hit a boiling point uh, during a periphery session late last year was, you know, I could tell you were in a bad place, you know, because of everything you've just described. And I think our responsibility, and this is certainly what I felt, is to sort of express almost what your therapist said. It's just like, you're not letting anybody down. It's okay to hit the brakes. It's okay for everyone here to hit the brakes. You're not disappointing any one of us. It's like, even if, if, it, if it weren't you, if it were Matt or Spencer or Jake, whatever, if they were in a place where they could not continue at this rate is, you know, the only thing you could say is nothing bad is going to happen if we shelve things for a month or a couple months or whatever in order to preserve your health. The thing is, and I think you guys were alluding to this before, is that at the end of the day, the psychology of this makes that really not matter because you're, you're so fixated on what you're 
you're feeling internally like that. You just don't hear it. And, and I think I, under, I think I understand that it's not something you can be convinced of in the moment. And, and I think it's something you kind of need space from. And I'm, I'm glad you've gotten the space since that moment in time to sort of, um, you know, feel like you've can find a good balance. Yeah. I think, I think this is also something that like creatives tend to be prone to as well, especially successful creatives, as you said, like would have gotten to this point sort of exercising this and really like having that hustler's mentality and benefiting from it, at least like visibly benefiting it from it more than, you know, sort of quietly not. And it's of course easy to justify it when you're like, well, I'm not sad. I'm not overworked. I mean, look, look at, look at all I've built, you know, it's very easy to distract yourself from that, which just, you know, makes it Twice as bad, but um, but yeah, you know this is. Uh, I know we're going on a bit of a of a mental That's health okay. tangent here, but like uh, I do think it's interesting that like I think about this stuff all the time. It doesn't matter of like the field. Even I've talked to. A lot, I like to talk to creatives of all fields because the parallels are are, are really astounding. It it seems like it's just the same sentiments and insecurities and 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 issues that you deal with manifested in different sort of mediums. So everyone kind of relates to it. And, and it's also weird because we don't really get a manual for this stuff. We're kind of all sort of trained for these, these jobs, which, you know, Mark, Mark was working one of those jobs. He's seen both sides of it, you know, like where you work the nine to five and the career and whatever, you're being told to be at this time at this place every day. And you report to these people and you're sort of this part of this, this larger thing that you may not have the same sort of vested interest in. It's not really like as much a focus on creativity. And that's sort of like what I feel we're better prepared for through school and all that kind of stuff. And once we do this, it's like, yep, you work for yourself. Great. I think that's supposed to be awesome. Everyone says how great it is. And then all the the the, the caveats, visible and invisible, are just sort of thrust at you and you don't even realize they're happening half the time until you start to feel the negative effects of them. And you have to figure that out. And there's no guideline. There's nothing, there's no preparation or priming for this. It's just, you have to figure it out. And it's interesting to me that as I talk to more and more creative people, how that process even evolves in a very similar way for a lot of people where they sort of make a lot of the same mistakes with mismanaging their time and taking on too much stuff and feeling like they have to say yes to everything, even as things evolve to where they don't have to say yes to everything, they have to learn how to say, you know, it's like, it's the same. It doesn't matter what your field is. Yeah. I have noticed that as well. The thing though is, so someone listening to this who is 25 or something and trying to get their, you know, production career or whatever career off the ground. I know that we're talking about how unhealthy it is to be like this, but at the same time, like that person probably does need to just say yes to everything and make the unhealthy choices if we're being realistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we did too. Yeah, because <laughs> so that's kind of what sucks about it is that like I agree with everything you're saying about finding the balance and like getting therapy and doing what you can to like quiet that voice to a degree. But I also think about how important it is to, I don't know, you kind of have to put in that level of energy to get to a certain point. I don't think there's a way around it. For many years in the very beginning, it had to be that way, you know, and, and like you were describing, you know, whoever's listening to this out there in that exact position you described or something similar, that mindset really, you have to have, you just don't have a choice. You can't be picky about things, but it's always, and, and I think this is the thing to draw from this talk, even if you can't relate to it, you know, one for one is, is just to always be aware of how it's affecting you. Because I think the negative effects can sneak up on you if you don't at least have your finger on the pulse of it. Uh, and 
like Misha was saying, I mean, it snuck up on him and it manifested in a way where he recognized at some point that this is not good. It's not healthy. It's not sustainable. I think just to have that as a tool, as a dialogue, to be able to consult and and just be aware of is healthy. Even if you're in a completely different position, even if you're 18 years old and you just want to produce and mix everybody, if you want to do 10 projects at once, go ahead and do it. You probably should. You probably should. And having at least the thought in your mind, you know, is this is this worth the cost that I'm putting into it from a time level, from a mental health level, from a financial level, to always be able to have this conversation with yourself instead of just pretending like it doesn't exist or not even having the terms in your vernacular to identify what those things are, because then it starts to seep into things like your mental health or your sanity. And then it, God knows how it could manifest, you know? Um, so being just being able to diagnose these things and, and, and I mean, I've, I've dealt with it a shit ton myself too over the years, uh, being able to say no. Um, to certain things. And, and my problem has always been like, I obsess over what happens if I would have said yes. You know, once I say no, then I spend like a week being like, mm -hmm. fuck, maybe, maybe that would have been really sick if I said yes. Uh, and then that torments me. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's all just healthy stuff to, to be aware of that there is some, there's some pressure gauge that's invisible. It's in there somewhere. But to know that it's there, I, I feel like is healthy no matter what age you are, no matter what position you are in your career, just know that it's there. That gauge has uh, helped me make some of the best decisions I've made. Like uh, when, when I knew that it was time to no longer pursue my band touring because it was just not going anywhere, I was doing that calculation. Like is the money, stress, time, health calculation. And when I really sat down and thought about that, like how is this affecting you? Is it worth it? Like, where's this going? Like all that stuff. It was super clear that I needed to make a, make a move, which is how I got to audio hammer. And then I went through that same calculation before starting URM. And so like taking stock of those things and how they were affecting me led to making the next, the next move. So even, even from just like a straight up career perspective, I think it's really important to, to take stock continually because uh, you also got to know if you're moving in the right direction because a lot of people mistake productivity for progress and uh, without a little bit of analysis is really easy to fall into that. Like I call it productivity theater um, where people just work, 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 and just they don't question. They just work their asses off. And because they have worked their asses off, they feel like, They've done something good and whatever that voice in their head that they need to satisfy is satisfied because of the hours logged. Um, and then a few years later or 10 years later or something, they're not where they wanted to be and they don't understand because they worked really, really hard the whole time and then have a, some sort of a mental crisis about it. And I think you're always going to have mental crises in your life. But not examining and not assessing can have you end up in places that are very far off from what you had intended, from what I've seen. Couldn't agree more. So like the 18-year-old listening, when we're saying like, yes, take the projects, the thing that I hope people don't do is just work, 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 work with no direction. That's the thing I hope they don't do. Well said. Do you ever find yourself doing that or at any point in your life, just like mistaking productivity with progress? Yeah, I think I think that's one of those tricky things where there's no real guideline. It's a very personal thing because it's it's always to do with, with your goals. I think, I, I don't want to speak for everyone. I like having dreams and I like dreaming big. 
And then that can always be sort of your North Star in these situations where you can sort of just audit what you're doing and reassess and be like, is this getting me closer to that or am I just sort of going nowhere fast? Because whatever those goals are, whether it's the short-term ones, whether it's the long-term ones, you should be ideally starting to make progress on some of those. And if you're not, then that's sort of a telltale sign of like being productive, but with no real end goal in sight, you know? So you said you like having lofty goals, which I do as well. Is it a conscious thing? No, I've always been a vivid dreamer and daydreamer. Like I've always, I've realized I get a lot of happiness from thinking about things, you know, and just imagining what it would be like to to this or that. And I, and I do spend a lot of time, I've always, I think I've always just been like that. I've just always been a bit of a dreamer. So that's come somewhat intuitively but I think the thing that's happened is like I've been able to achieve some of these dreams. So then that causes this sort of positive feedback loop of like, oh, so like it actually pays off to have dreams because you may not achieve all of them. And some of them were really lofty at the time. Like I would love to be in a touring band. That seemed impossible. And I was quite happy working a job. I was working at Radio Shack and then Container Store and like just doing music in my free time. I was very happy doing that actually. Like that was fine. The idea of like, Going out on a on on like a weekend tour, or a short tour, and losing money in a van, you know that 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 was that was cool. You know, anything beyond that was like, yeah. But come on, let's be real. Like, I, I, I dream about winning the lottery too. You know, like that's not gonna happen. But then you have a lofty goal like that, and it actually does happen. And it's like, wow, okay. So let's dream. Let's keep dreaming big, then. You know, and and it's not an expectation. It's just an aspiration. So if it doesn't happen, I'm not disappointed, but I like dreaming about stuff. Yeah. Well, the thing with lofty goals, there's no reason not to, because, uh, I, I feel like it's, it's really easy to say that's unrealistic. Let's not even think about it. But why? Like, why is it actually unrealistic? Whenever someone tells me that they don't want to think of, they want to keep their goals realistic. My thoughts are like, are you a psychic or something? You know, it's not going to work. Like what, why? Like, Someone can do it. Like, why not you? Or you could have both. I have realistic goals and unrealistic goals, and it's mm -hmm. a spectrum. You know what always drove me, at least in the very beginning, and I'm not sure if you guys can relate, but was um, always entertaining these ridiculous dreams I had. And like like you were saying, it's like I, I'm completely a, a foolish dreamer as well. What always drove me was the idea of not trying something, you know, because of the mathematics behind it, like like making it in a band or like getting to a level where we could tour, even on a small level. Like the mathematics of that working out were so minuscule that maybe somebody who didn't dream as much as I did or maybe someone less naive than me would be like, no, nah, fuck that. Why am I going to I'm just going to do something else. To me, the idea of never trying it and even not knowing how I'd fare doing it, even if I crashed and burned, the fear of never knowing... And almost like the angst it brought me was what drove me to just go all in on it, you know? Even if it, my, my goals weren't that ambitious in the very beginning for, you know, doing music as a profession, I guess just not being able to live with myself if I didn't try something that I thought maybe could happen if I put in enough work. And if I, you know, leaving things up to luck, maybe it could happen, which all those things panned out. You know, I don't know. Can you guys relate to that? Does that, does that sound weird? Mm hmm 100%. Totally. That's... That's the sort of desperate action that one needs to have. And yeah. like, because, because you have to be naive. Like if you looked at the math, a lot of this stuff just wouldn't make sense. We needed that naive energy and that hope to, to be in a band, you know? That's why I always say, if I had to start a band again, I wouldn't. I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, ignorance is bliss in, in, those, in those cases. And um, 
so I was I was in in university studying something I didn't care about at all. You know, and I, I dropped out. And, you know, my parents weren't thrilled about that, and they were like, you know, we'll rent your room in the house, or you're getting a full time job. This isn't an opportunity for you to be lazy. And like, if, as long as you keep that job, we'll rent you a, house, uh, a room in the house. But if you don't have a job, <laughs> we're gonna kick you out. You have to figure it out. <laughs> and and I was so much happier doing that because I felt like I was at least trying something. I knew that because they're like, yeah, work full-time job in your free time. You can do whatever you want. You want to do music, do music. And that's what I was doing. And like for the first time, I felt like I was giving this thing a shot. And I had this conversation with my dad who very responsibly was like, you know, statistically, you have no chance of making it, right? <laughs> like, why do you think you're going to make it? And I was like, look, I don't, but I but if I don't try, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Like that, that fear is way worse than anything else. It's scary to like kind of drop out of school and like take a risk on this and, and go for it. But not nearly as scary to me as not knowing of like what could have been like, oh my God, I can't even imagine what that That's was. That's way worse. I have a friend who got offered like an acting gig and he had never acted before, but he got offered a gig to do it. It's like back in the 90s and he still laments to this day. Like even, and it, you know, 95%. Oh, they turned it, turned it down? Yeah, he turned it down. Probably wasn't going to pan out. Probably wasn't going to turn into anything. But there's still that 0.0001% that he would have been, you know, Brad Pitt or something. Well, he guaranteed that it didn't exactly, work out. Exactly, exactly. But I feel like, like you guys were saying, it's like that's not near as bad as actually going and like sucking at acting and then just moving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that's a story, at least. You learned something from it. You got exposure to a different kind of world. You know that it didn't work out and hopefully you know why it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, that's a pain that I've always been afraid of. And luckily I'm, you know, like I, I guess when I was little, I always wanted to like play baseball or play basketball or be a professional athlete. Luckily I wasn't given the physical tools to do those things. So I was, I could have, I couldn't have done those things even if I, I felt like I wanted to take that risk. But, uh, yeah, the, the music thing was just, was too much for me, uh, to not, try despite the fact that I knew that it probably wasn't going to go anywhere. And I feel like latching on to that reality too is important for people because and I always say this, it, it brings you back to wanting to do these things for the right reasons. Knowing that I wanted to do this not to get rich or not to get into it for the wrong reasons, but just wanting to do it because I thought I was okay at it. You know, I feel like it all kind of works and drives everything back home to that point. If you get back to the reality of the fact that this is probably not going to go anywhere, get back to doing it for love and because you don't really know how to do anything else as well. You know, a project falling on its face isn't that bad. No. I'm sure you guys have had projects or things that have just failed. Everyone in this industry has had way more of those than they've had successes. My whole band quit. Haunted Shores quit. Everybody quit. My brother was one of the people who quit and uh, it was devastating. And then a year later, I asked Misha if he could help me write and record some of these songs. And, you know, it turned into 14 years to this day of, you know, a solid friendship and, and working relationship that isn't going anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, it sucks to have stuff fall on its face, but just God knows. It's not that bad. That's the thing. You just learn to cut your losses and move on. Like, yeah, everyone in this band has done it. Like, fucking seen you know matt with with band happy and all that stuff like the resilience that he showed and like it's why he's successful because people who are good at just being like all right i accept it like this is this is no longer worth the the time stress and effort cut my losses mourn it very very quickly and move on move on to the next thing and just you know and then you realize it's not yeah you're right it's not to me that is not even close 
to as scary as not trying it in the first place. What you just mentioned is why every kid, I think, should be exposed to sports in some way. It's like losing the Stanley Cup in Game 7 by a goal in yeah. overtime. Like, look at look at how a team handles that shit and how they mm-hmm. bounce back. And, like, what do you do from that? You know, like, that that is such a life lesson right there. Go again. Just do it again. Run the table yeah. again. Let's do it. I don't know if you guys know about it, but I had a beard oil company for like two years from like 2016 and 17 metal beard club. And like, yeah, the product was great. The branding was great. The marketing was great. Like it was great. It was, and it was better than any of the other stuff I would buy. It was legitimately awesome, but it just we couldn't fucking sell it. It just wasn't working. It felt really good to uh, cut that off. Like it was disappointing of course, but it was like it failing and like recognizing it and moving on actually felt like a win to me. I didn't feel like I fell on my face or anything. But I think that's, I think the fear that that is going to hurt is is maybe what stops a lot of people from trying yeah. these things out. And then when when you actually experience what happens is like people who actually experience it are like, oh, that wasn't that bad. And then you become kind of invincible. It's like, all right, then let's try all the things, you know. And um, and and then you end up with a, a whole bunch of projects and companies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, getting the shit kicked out of you a few times, it really is a character builder. I do think it should happen to everyone at some point. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I've definitely had that happen in a lot of ways, uh, metaphorically and and figuratively, uh, or or and uh, and literally rather. But all of those, it's like, you know, I can't regret any of the things that that have happened to me, even stuff that in a vacuum or at the time I was like, you know, I would have done anything to undo or whatever because it's made me who I am now. And I think those are all extreme character builders. It kind of sucks too think about it. Like I've got a niece and nephew and I don't want anything ever bad to happen to them ever. Mm. And then like I'm like balancing with that. It's like, well, if nothing bad happens to them ever, they'll probably turn to really shitty people. But <laughs> like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need a little bit of adversity. I just hope they could get away with the minimum amount to be good people. But like Minim- uh, <laughs> minimum viable dose. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That is, that is the parents' dilemma. Thank God I'm not a parent because I, ha- I have that same thought all the time, all the time, you know, and at the end of the day, it's like, well, I guess I will let you run around with scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's, that's, fuck that. That seems terrible. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> how are they going to yeah. learn? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, no, my sister, my sister and my brother-in-law, that's what the first kid, they were, they were like neurotic over everything. Second kid's like, how else is she going to learn? You know, <laughs> like, wow, one kid is all it takes to just become nonchalant. But you know, it's true though. How else are they going to learn? No, it's, it's a hundred percent true. And it's the right it's, attitude. It's real hard to learn from other people's mistakes. Like I know that like, if it wasn't difficult, then you know, kids, friends, asking for advice, whoever, like advice would actually work, but that just doesn't work. Not for stubborn people like us, it doesn't. It has to be really extreme for me to learn from somebody else's mistakes. Like they dropped a nuke on themselves or something. A dude threw himself into a wood chipper. Yeah, something like that. it could be fun. It might be different for me. I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, maybe I should try it for myself. Well, okay, so the thing is, I feel like, the reason at least that I don't learn well from other people's mistakes is because I naively sometimes think the outcome will be different for me. They did something wrong. So I'm going to try it. And uh, sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. It's like that arrested development quote where Tobias is explaining about open marriages and how these couples just delude themselves (laughs) into thinking it's going to work, but it always ends in disaster, but it just might work for us. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's perfect. That's exactly All right. Well, dudes, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you very much for hanging out. As always, it's a pleasure. And I actually did listen to the record. And I actually do think it rules. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you, man. That means a lot. Yeah. You know, like I said, just to round it all off, I was expecting something completely different, and I'm really happy that it's not what I was expecting. Can I ask you what made you think you were going to get, like, Iron Maiden? I don't I don't know, because I'm familiar with you guys as musicians, and, like, I've never heard you do anything stupid or cheesy. Like, everything I've ever heard has been good. Like, I don't I don't know why. It had nothing to do with you guys. It was, like, it's just that usually people's other projects suck. <laughs> you know? That's a great quote. <laughs> that's, that's, it wasn't you guys. <laughs> Is that Lyndon B. Johnson there? <laughs> usually other people's projects. Yeah. It's interesting because what you're saying it's like we should market Periphery 5 like it's going to be just like cheesy 80s rock. So like when, it, <laughs> when it comes out, people will be like, oh, this is a lot better than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, like hey, have, have a, the album cover be like palm trees and stuff like that. Or like, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, just, just completely um, airbrushed. Yeah. It'd be the great misdirection, as it were. Yeah. Well, look, you guys gave me no indication that it would sound the way I thought it was going to sound. So that was 100% my own... In- weird invention well i'm glad that happened that's <laughs> yeah of the styles that you would assume it would be that's probably one of the better ones for them when you hear it which is great i would have thought the artwork might have clued you in but <laughs> it, did, well, it did once i saw the artwork i was like i don't think and i saw the song title so i was like wait a second wait a minute that that album art first song is called hellfire that's an interesting 80s glam rock you got here <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, I knew I kind of knew what I was getting myself into when I saw the song titles, but then I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Thank God. We'll try and deliver more standing back to back, hair blowing in the wind, guitar harmonies next time. He got the hair down, don't we? Yeah, exactly. That's what we're building up to. He's got Jake's the hair. growing his hair out, by the way. Oh, really? No. Did you know this? Did you no. know this? Yes, he is. He's growing his hair out. But he said that he said that so many times in the past. No, no, no. He's actually growing. He's actually like growing it's longer it than I've ever seen it. I don't believe. It. I won't believe it until his head hair is longer than his beard hair currently. I don't believe it. I. I Dude, he's growing it out. He's wearing beanies and everything. Wow. Yep. He says that he wants, and sorry, I know this is like nothing to do with anything. I'm just updating oh, Mark okay. here. That, that <laughs> like by the time we start touring again, he's going to have three long-haired fucks on stage, Oh, man. man. We're going to look like Cannibal Corp. We got to get Spencer to like grow his <laughs> neck all thick, too. Yeah. <laughs> and just do windmills. I got to learn how to do windmills now. I look fucking cool. I'll look like a bunch of F1 drivers. Just fucking windmilling, <laughs> big old necks. Look like thumbs. Good luck, Good luck with the hair growth strategies. So. Uh, hey, mine, mine, mine's getting there. Mine's oh, getting yeah. there. No, yeah, it's just looking good. Jake, Jake's got. When I met Jake, he had he had longer hair than both of us. Yeah, he yeah. down to his butt. Oh, really? Yeah, he looked like a grunge guy. Like he would have uh, said I, mud I honey or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that yeah. name came to mind. Before, like, <laughs> Did they have long hair down to their butt? Because that's what he looked like. Yeah, and then he cut it short because eventually every every time this is my second time having hair this long. You get really annoyed. I've almost cut it just from being annoyed. And the plan was, I thought we'd be touring by now. So I was like, oh, my hair will be long by the time we start touring again. Off by at least a year. I'm like, man, I got to live with this mop for a year. That sucks. But the girls seem to like it, which is weird. Because I always thought they would tell me to cut it off. They're like, no, don't cut it. So then, like, I'm going to keep it for now. Jake's going to grow his hair out. And if Jake's doing it, then then I will not cut mine in, in solidarity. If he cuts his hair, then I'm going to cut my hair. So that's that's my threat. 
No, don't do that because he's going to cut it. Then we'll cut yours. <laughs> you're sleeping. <laughs> This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. Sorry to s- sidetrack. Okay, that was a very important conversation I need to have with Mark. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank, thanks for having right. us, man. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Thanks sorry. for having us, dude. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.